session with Dr. Farid Holakwi. Good evening and welcome to In Session. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Dolakwi, and I'll be with you for the next hour here on Radio Hamra. Studio number to call in, 310-441-0555. I'm a licensed clinical psychologist, so you can call in with any questions related to clinical psychology, including any emotional or psychological issues, parenting issues, and relationship issues as well. You can also follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics or books for the program. And the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and podcast on iTunes. Again, our studio number 310-441-0555. So usually Mondays, I do the book summary, but uh, today I won't be doing the book summary because um, I'm going to be joined on Wednesday by the author of the book of the week from last week, Dr. Neda Mabule, who wrote the book, The Limits of Whiteness, Iranian Americans and the Everyday Politics of Race. And uh, I already, even though we'll talk about it on Wednesday, highly recommend this book really to anyone, but especially if you are Iranian and even more so Iranian American, um, because it talks about the experiences and also some of the historical background related to race, uh, discrimination, and the experiences of Iranian-Americans, and it's really fascinating. Um, I basically finished the book, but just have the appendices left, so um, did get to complete it to give you a f- my own opinion on it before I'm joined on the show Wednesday to talk about it with the author, Neda Magbule, but highly recommended The Limits of Whiteness. Uh, it was just great to read a book that talked about the Iranian-American experience in a sometimes personal way because she interviewed something 80 some odd uh, Iranian Americans and has their experience throughout the book, but also written from a, uh, in a scientific research type of a perspective as well. So it was just really great and um, very much looking forward to having her on the show. So tune in Wednesday afternoon for that show at 12 noon, where I'll be joined by Neda Makbule to talk about the book, The Limits of Whiteness, Iranian Americans, and the Everyday Politics of Race. And I'll also announce the book for this week that I'll talk about next week. It is Marriageology, The Art and Science of Staying Together by Belinda Luscombe, or Luscombe, I'm not exactly sure how to say that. Marriageology, so basically kind of like a play on the words, but like the study of marriage, the art and science of staying together. Um, So I'll read that and share that with you next week. I wanted to start off today talking about giving. Uh, It is what people sometimes call the holiday season, depending on what holidays and holy days you celebrate. We talk about the holiday season and people are giving. Also, it is the end of the calendar year. And so because of tax reasons, sometimes people become a little bit more giving because they want to get potential tax breaks or write-offs and things like that. So people tend to give a little bit more and of course, gifts and all these things. And even just feel like people are in a more generous mood. Um, These things have cultural context and also behaviors are contagious. So when you see other people doing things, you're more likely to do them as well. We are social creatures in that way. Um, So you just feel that spirit of giving is around. And so I wanted to talk a bit about that. Um, Also related to that, we wanted to announce again the Radio Hamra toy drive that we were doing. If you want to bring toys, uh, please do so here at the Radio Hamra studios. You can either send them in. I know some people do mail them, but especially if you're in the area, 
come by 1762 Westwood Boulevard, Suite 330, Los Angeles, California, 90024. Uh, and that's for the Mattel Children's Hospital. And the gifts must be unwrapped and completely unused, brand new, um, so that they can be given to the kids there. So you can hopefully brighten the day and the holidays of, of someone who might be sick, a child dealing with uh, something they truly, of course, don't deserve, but hopefully you can give them a little bit of love. So um, in that spirit of giving, I wanted to talk about giving, but also the spirit of giving or what that really means or is or some thoughts on that. Uh, because as always, with anything we do, and the focus of this show being a psychologist, I'm always wanting people to think a little bit more deeply about not just what they're doing, but why they are doing it. And our intentions are always even more important than the actual actions at the end of the day. If you are giving to someone because you want to later manipulate them, then that act of giving or whatever it was you did in that giving is actually much worse than doing nothing at all. So we always want to look at our intentions and really evaluate why am I giving something. And uh, there actually is a quote in or a verse in the Bible that actually I really like related to this, um, where essentially it's saying, um, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. And it's talking about when you're doing charitable work or giving. So don't sound trumpets. That's in the verse before it. When you're giving something, just give. And even when it says, do not let your um, left hand know what your right hand is doing, it means even to the point where you are not giving yourself that credit, or at least that's how I see it, that you're so humble about it or so detached from your action and getting attention or praise from it, even you are not giving yourself recognition in that way. And so when we really give, it's just to give because we think it's the right thing to do. We think it's the right action to do. So we always want to evaluate why we're doing something. And a lot of times we feel like we have to give or we have to do something that's very different than um, when we give really with the intention just because we think it's right and to be generous and to give to someone else. And of course, some people will argue, well, it's always selfish because at the end of the day, even if you're giving for those reasons, it makes you feel good. And so because of that, it still makes it selfish. Um, but I get some of the merits of that argument, but at the end of the day, then you can't do anything um, for any good reason. Everything we do is for a bad reason because it makes us feel good. I'm sure people would say there's a difference between stealing money because it makes you feel good and giving uh, money to a charity or giving your time to a charity because it makes you feel good. So we can't use that, I think, as an index of what's going on. Now, yes, if you're doing it to get approval or if you're getting it to get attention, that is something different. And this is becoming more of an issue now, especially with social media. Um, before, people would do things like donate anonymously. Uh, that was one distinction or put their name on something. Now with social media, people give and they post pictures or videos of themselves giving. And I have mixed feelings about this. And again, it goes back to the intention. I generally don't like the way it looks when people do these things. Um, you know, showing themselves like a photo opportunity or a video to show what they're doing because at times it appears that they are doing it for the attention or to look good or to get that positive feedback from people to show them, hey, look, what a good guy or good girl I am. And that I don't think is a good reason to give. And sometimes it feels 
artificial in that way. It doesn't feel very genuine. So I usually have a bit of a negative reaction to people posting things um, that they're doing. However, at the same time, um, there's two sides to it that I can see in a positive way. One is at times people bring attention to matters that should get attention. So there's some kind of injustice, there's people suffering, um, there's people that need help. And so by showing themselves giving to that, whether it's organization or people that are suffering, whatever it is, they are bringing attention to something which can be good so that other people can help. So there are people who are suffering in some region of the world. You show that you're there or that you are helping out in some way. It, it could bring attention to people of a problem they don't know. And then related to that, um, as I mentioned before, behaviors are contagious. So if you see that people are giving and if everyone sees that people are giving as much as we might think, well, I should think for myself and I shouldn't be affected by other people, we know that's not true um, or completely not true, I should say, in the sense that we're not affected. We're all affected. We can't be completely unaffected by others. So we know it does have an effect. If you find out that no one is giving, you'll be less likely to give. But if you find out that almost everyone is giving or doing things, you're much more likely to do that. So uh, when people post things, it can encourage this contagion of giving that people see, oh, others are doing things, others are volunteering, others are donating to charities. It can have that positive effect. So I do have some of those mixed feelings. I really think it depends on the way people post things. Is the attention being put on you for being the good person or is the attention being brought on the act of giving and on the people who you are helping even more than you. Usually I think most posts are about the person trying to get that attention and it's tough uh, where to draw that line. And this is again where it comes back to intention and only you can know what and why uh, or why you're doing what you're doing. And we should all think about that. It's easier to think, oh, I'm doing a good thing. So I'm doing a good thing. But we want to think of that why. Now, I did want to talk a few minutes about another aspect of giving or doing things for others that comes up, and that's our feelings about their reactions to what we do or what we give. So sometimes people will say, well, if you have, if you care about the reaction, that shows that you were doing it for the wrong reasons. And I can see some of the, where people are coming from, and even I've thought this way, but it, it's actually a I think it's more complicated than that, or there's more to it than just that. Because I think in a way we can separate the actions. Of course, we do have to look at our intentions, but first you do something and you think, okay, I'm going to go give this food to that person because they are hungry. And so that's your action and you think it's the right thing to do, let's say, and you go do that. And then now you give it to them and let's say they yell at you or they get mad at you or they say something mean or they throw it at you. You might have a reaction to how they respond or they take it and say, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. You could have a positive feeling about that too. So we have to at times separate those things. They're definitely related. They definitely affect each other. It definitely could be that if just your intention is one thing, that's going to affect how you care, think about their response. But at times we have to think about those different things. If you pick up your friend from the airport because they ask you for a ride, and then when you drop them off, they say, whatever, that was, I wish you didn't pick me up. I don't like you anyway, or whatever, something mean, you might not like the way they're responding to what you did. It doesn't mean you only did it to get some positive response or you only did it to make them see you a certain way or anything like that. You can have a feeling about how they respond and they don't necessarily have to be tied in 
or one and the same. Because people will sometimes say, oh, oh, you're, you're counting the number of times you did this, so it means you didn't really do it uh, with a good heart. Or you care that I'm not appreciating what you did, so clearly you only did it to get my appreciation. And that's not necessarily true. If you um, do something for someone and they respond in a rude way or they don't even recognize what you did, it doesn't feel very good, and that's understandable. So we can think of... Um, what we have done, the action, and our feelings about their response in some ways as separate but related things. And so sometimes they can also inform what's going on. So let's say you go give food to someone and they react in a negative way and you do it a few more times to different people and you get a similar response. You might start to think about what you're doing. Am I doing it in a way that makes people feel uncomfortable? Or am I crossing some boundary that I'm not thinking about? I just think I'm giving, but they might feel like I'm going into their space. And sometimes that happens. People give to people in a way that doesn't think about the other person. They think, oh, I wanted to give you this. And the person's like, I don't want it. And, you know, someone might say this is a little bit more extreme, but someone just starts giving you a massage because they say, oh, I thought you were, your back was sore. And you say, I don't want it. And they keep massaging you because I want to, because I love you, that doesn't feel very good because they're not respecting your boundaries and your space. So we can pay attention to the reactions people give us to what we do. We definitely should because that can help us and aid us in our future behavior or think about what's going on. But again, to have a feeling about how they react, I don't want people to think that necessarily means you had to have had bad intentions or your only intention was their reaction. You can do the right thing uh, and then pay attention to how they react and have a feeling about that. But it doesn't mean you only did it for their reaction. Now, if based on their reaction, you never do it again, that might be related to, okay, you might have done it more for the actual reaction or response that they have, that it's not just about doing the thing. So when we think about being generous, we think about giving. As with all things, we want to evaluate the why. Why am I doing what am I am doing. And also I think it's important to keep in mind that if you do have a feeling about someone's reactions, that doesn't necessarily mean you had bad intentions. And if you're on the other end of it, think of that too. If someone doesn't like how you respond to something they do for you, don't make that seem like that means they had bad intentions or didn't do it at all for you. They might have a reaction to that. We, we sometimes try to want or pretend that we should have no expectations. And I get the overall mindset of try and have less expectations, but I think it's impossible to have no expectations. If you, let's say, brought over all these things for someone and then brought them and they barely looked at you and said, okay, put it there and leave, you would have a reaction. Okay, that was not very polite or they didn't even appreciate what I did. Again, it doesn't mean you only did it for their reaction, but you might have a feeling to their reaction, which is understandable. We want to recognize them as separate things but see how they're related, but also always keep in mind we want to look at the why. Why did I do what I did? Why am I doing this quote-unquote generous thing? I say quote-unquote because you might look at it and realize I wasn't really being generous. I was doing it for attention or approval, or actually it was a genuinely generous act, and that's something that you can understand uh, and then make help you understand more about yourself as well. So in the spirit of giving, we always want to think about why we're giving and how we're giving and not just stop at the action itself. All right, let's go to a commercial break. Studio number 3104410555. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Let's go to a caller. Radio Hamra, you're on the air. Hey, doctor. How's it going? Good, thanks. Thanks for calling. 
Um, so I'm having a dilemma right now where I'm trying to decide where to go to school. Okay. Uh, so I've done a year and a half at the University of California, Berkeley, mm-hmm. studying economics. Nice. Um, but I'm from Atlanta, Georgia, so I'm paying out-of-state tuition. Mm. And uh, my dad was recently laid off from work this past summer. So I can't really finish my degree without going into debt about $140,000. Mm. So um, I have uh, applied to transfer to the University of Georgia and uh, study finance over there, so similar major. And um, that would be almost no tuition, so I would graduate debt-free over there. But I wouldn't have the same job opportunities coming out and, uh, you know, just not the same opportunities. And for what I want to go into, which is investment banking, um, it's much more... uh, likely that you'd get a good job out of Berkeley than mm. with UGA. So I'm just uh, trying to decide how would I weigh those options and um, if you have any advice for me. Yeah, that's tough. Uh, you know, obviously they're both good schools. Berkeley is a great school. Um, and it, you'd be making the sacrifice fin- for a financial reason and also related to your family, it seems like. You don't want to put a more of a stress or burden on them. And so whatever right, exactly. you decide, although... You're considering your family and considering a lot of things. You really want to make sure you feel like it's your decision and you're going to own it 100%, um, including maybe owning the debt if you have to do that. But owning the decision as in if you decide to go back, let's say, to UGA to be close to uh, to stay in state, um, that you're going to take that as your decision and your path. Or if you decide to stay in Berkeley and get some debt, you'll accept that as well. Because um, what I see happen at times with families and all families have this, but especially in Iranian families, we can feel pressure from parents or other people to make a certain decision. They make a decision, let's say, to go to a school and they feel like they did it for their parents. Then when they face the challenges and stress that come with that decision, they are mad at them and resentful for them for whatever it is. And sometimes they even give up because they feel like I didn't want this stress. So either one of these options you take are going to be in a way good because they're two great schools, but they're going to have their own consequences and stressors that you're going to deal with. And what I want for you is to make sure whatever one you decide, you own it. First of all, you make it as your decision, and then also you own it as your own decision. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. So where where are you leaning right now? Where are you at in the thought process? Um, I'm really leaning more towards Berkeley because I just feel like if I don't go back, I'm going to end up regretting it a lot. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, you know, the whole financial burden on my family is pretty big. And uh, also, there's no guarantee that it will pay off. There's, you can get a lot of good jobs out of UGA. Um, Maybe it's just the likelihood that you're going to get the same level of jobs is lower. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of a risk benefit analysis sort of thing. Yeah. And uh, but really, I'm leaning more towards Berkeley. I only have, I want to say, maybe a week to decide, though. So okay. I'm really back and forth. I see. Yeah, you're. Um, it's funny because pros and cons and weighing those cost benefit. That's a lot of what finance. You have to do a lot of that anyway as part of the work, right? So uh, you're trying to yeah. see if this investment, investing in yourself and in education, which one makes more sense. So this is like your first uh, big decision when it comes to finance. It yeah, is, exactly. First it, big investment. Yeah, it's a, and it's a pretty big one. But like I said, I think 
either way, you're going to make it work. So, it, you know, I don't think it's one is going to be good and one's going to be horrible or anything like that. Um, but I think it is important to pay attention to what you did say about you want to go to Berkeley. And um, I like the idea of betting on yourself in this sense of as far as when it comes to the, the financial financial investment. I don't know the difference between the job market of uh, when it comes to finance, going to Berkeley and graduating from, I'm assuming, Haas uh, or the undergraduate part of Haas Business School or UGA Finance. I don't know how different your prospects are. I think it would be important for you. We can talk about the psychological stuff, but as far as the professional stuff, you, you probably want to talk to people if you haven't already within the field, if you have access either through your professors or um, any other way, because they can tell you, okay, yeah, this makes a huge difference, or maybe it doesn't make that much of a difference. And along with the financial side, there is the personal side of either being in Berkeley or being at home. I'm sure both have their own pros and cons as well that I, I don't want you just to think about the financial side. You, you need to, cause that's something, but to not think of it just as a financial decision, you know? Right. Yeah. So, I mean, to be closer to home would definitely be a lot easier for me. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, I was thinking like, just go to Berkeley for two and a half years, suck it up, do the work. And, uh, you'd probably be better off in the end. But you know, again, yeah, it would be, no doubt more comfortable to be here at yeah. UGA. And I have a lot of friends over here already, so there's yeah. that as well. But I do have friends there, so I don't know. Are, do you uh, have your parents given you any input or any pressure when it comes to the decision? Uh, no real pressure. They support me either way. Um, I know it would definitely be easier, though, if I were here. My mom would love me to be here, you know, closer to home. Mm-hmm. And uh, obviously there's the financial aspect as well. Right. So, you know, you said you, you have a lot of friends there, too. How do you, do you like being at Berkeley? I do, but um, most of the time, not particularly, actually. You mm. know, it's fun sometimes, but usually, uh, I would say generally I don't prefer Berkeley. Okay. So really, yeah. it's mostly just the educationally, you feel like it'll set you up better in your career. Yeah, exactly. But you don't like, this is your second year at Berkeley? Uh, yep. Okay. Okay. And so you, you've been, yeah, a year and a half, um, but you don't love it there on the social side or being in the Bay Area is not something. Yeah, that not particularly okay. that appealing to me. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, it is a, it's a tough, you know, as always, pros and cons. And, and pros and cons, I think Benjamin Franklin had, like, I forgot the name for it, but when you talk about making a pros and cons list, it's not that uh, um, revolutionary, uh, maybe revolutionary is an interesting word for, for Benjamin Franklin, but to, you know, putting weights on them, because sometimes people just list them as numbers, so you have, like, four on one side, three on the other, you should pick the one with four, but the weights matter, of course, of how much you're, you're you know, how, how much they affect you those different things. So, right. you know, you, I, I'm sure you're writing them all out. It's interesting though. your initial reaction is to go to Berkeley, even though you think you'll be more comfortable or I don't know if it's the happier is the right word in Georgia. Um, and so I, I don't know if it's just the opportunity. You feel like you deserve that in a way to be at Berkeley, even if it's harder. Uh, I, I'm not sure if that's what it is or just really yeah, the future. I think, I think a lot of it is just uh, is that, and it's also just feeling like maybe I'm throwing away something big, something that um, could be life-changing or, uh, you know, something that 
um, could change the trajectory of my life versus just going back and doing what's easy and staying home. Yeah. If that makes sense. No, it does make sense. I mean, easy is a... Uh... It's a tough one because sometimes easy can be, it can be good. I don't want to say it's always worse, but a lot of times it's, you know, taking an easier way or the more comfortable way can be worse for us in the long term. And have you talked to people about how different the prospects are from Berkeley or Georgia? Yeah, I've talked to some friends, um, some, some of my family here as well. And, you know, everybody says something different. <laughs> I have friends who graduate from Berkeley and didn't do much with their degree. And I have others you know, who got great jobs. So there's different points of view. Sure. And at the end of the day, you're going to, you know, make with your degree what you will. There's some things where it does make a big difference. Like I know with law school, for example, I know you're talking about undergrad, but it can make a big difference if you're coming out of a top tier law school or a lower tier, you know, law school makes a huge difference in the job prospects. But again, you can go to whatever school and make something yourself. Um, and I don't know with finance, I know they do usually come and uh, recruit people from uh, when it comes to finance. So I'm not sure how different the opportunities are, but at the end of the day, it is going to be what you make of it. You can go to the best school in the world. And then if you don't work hard and, you know, uh, follow through with a lot of things, you won't get anywhere and you can go to a, a good school and if you work really hard, you'll make, you know, meet your potential, so to speak. So um, it's interesting to me that your first leaning was towards Berkeley, but then when you talk about it, it seems like you go towards Georgia, mm, and which yeah. is kind of like a gut instinct or gut feeling um, compared to like when we think about something. You know, there's this, it's kind of a, it's in some ways silly, but I think also interesting. People say flip a coin, you know, and then see what you're hoping for it to land on like say heads is berkeley tails is georgia you know you flip a coin and in that moment your gut kind of tells you what you want more what you prefer because you can you'll, you'll see that you have a a desire for it to land one way or the other so you could try things like that but it could be that you this stuff could be hard because sometimes when we say emotional it sounds like we're saying irrational but it could be something right. that you're feeling gut feeling is it could be something more internal like which really is taking in a lot of things where it'll feel more right to you to be at Berkeley. And then when you think about the logistics of it, Georgia makes more sense. So it pushes you that way. It reminds me of research they've done where they say, for example, tried, I think it was like on jelly or jam, and they had people taste it and then rank how tasty they were, you know, how delicious different ones were. And when they just asked them to give a quick rating, they would actually do as well as professional food tasters would do. But when they said, before you judge it, describe why you like it or what you like about it, when they try to logically explain, they become actually worse in rating things. They actually got it more, I mean, it's hard to say right or wrong, but uh, using the food critics who are professionals as the baseline, they weren't as good at determining it. So sometimes when we ask for the logistical things or try to describe it, it's harder to really get a sense of it. But you know, I also can understand that when you think of it that way, it can sound like we're saying just make a decision based on whatever feels right in the moment and don't think it through, which I don't think is good either. But I would pay attention to that initial inkling and really try to understand what Berkeley means to you, what you feel like. I think you also said it in a good way. What are you giving up? Because not only are you looking at what you're choosing in this case, it's very important to pick, pay attention to what are you giving up and what that's going to feel like. Because at the end of the day, you're going to go to a great school. That That's for sure. But the feeling of, okay, did I give up Berkeley, which maybe, I don't know, uh, even out of high school, if it was a dream school for you or other things like that, 
that could feel like you're giving up a lot too, not just about what you're choosing. Actually, let me ask you about that. Was Berkeley, was there some, you know, did you really want to go there? Was it something you really wanted to do? It was, uh, it was kind of a reach school. They had a great uh, economics program and business program, mm -hmm. so I applied kind of off a whim. And uh, when I got in, I, uh, I just felt like I had to go. Mm -hmm. And, um, yeah, that's pretty much how it happened. Okay. And then w was there a feeling, like, experience that you had of, okay, it's like this dream school, I'm going there, and now that you've went there, it hasn't lived up to that, or um, not, not really? I think, I think there's a little bit of that. I think it was good for a little while, and then, uh, I don't know, just kind of went a little bit downhill, and then um, I'm just not, I didn't have the greatest semester last semester, and so it kind of put, it kind of changed my perspective a little bit, mm. and uh, yeah, I'm just in a different place from where I was when I first got in mm -hmm. a little bit. And you mean greatest semester academically, or more on the personal social side? Uh, I would say probably a little bit of both. A little bit of both? I got pretty sick, and then um, I had a uh, Doctors were worried. I had some CT scans and stuff done, and oh. then they were thinking it was lymphoma, so I came home for a little bit, uh, oh. got better. But, yeah, it was, uh, it was just not the best semester for me. Yeah, that sounds pretty stressful. So that um, the lymphoma was a false alarm? Yeah, it was some sort of virus, or they thought maybe it was mono or something. They never really figured out what it was. Mm -hmm. But, I, I mean, that must have been scary for you to hear lymphoma. I don't know how long you were oh, yeah, waiting. Definitely. How long were you sitting with that? So I was, uh, I was getting sick for about three weeks where I was just fatigued during the day, but at night I would have really high 103, 104 fevers Oof. and uh, sweats and chills. Um, so, yeah, doctors couldn't really figure out what it was. It happened a lot over winter break. Mm -hmm. And then it was going away by the time I went back to school. It was gone, and then it came back about two months later. And uh, I actually medically withdrew, and then my father got laid off that summer. So I just mm -hmm. was rethinking everything. Yeah, wow. That's, that's a lot to deal with um, all at the same time. So I, I could see how that can also have a feeling of things are kind of unsafe or so much is going on it's just better to be home like be closer yeah. to the home base so uh, i could see that do you feel that pressure at all that your parents need you there your father being laid off he needs you home no i don't feel like okay. he needs me home um uh you know i just don't want to put any added pressure on the family um especially if i don't feel like it's necessarily worth it yeah that's well you know that worth it it's a tough um a tough thing to put a value on because, you know, right. it, it could be worth a lot. And it's tough sometimes we feel like our parents can't handle something that they can or not that we should add stress to their life intentionally, but that we want to not make a decision just because it might not be easiest on them if it benefits us. So I think it's important for you to think about that. And maybe they don't explicitly tell you there's a pressure, but you might feel a pressure to be there for them or not make it harder on them do you do you feel like the what's been going on at home they've been under a lot of pressure not from you but just in general um no i think we're pretty comfortable right okay. now uh financially it's, it's not uh, a big problem but i feel like it could be down the road especially if my dad you know he's about 64 right now mm -hmm. if he has trouble finding a job or whatever yeah um then it could definitely be difficult
Yeah, it's it's a it's a tough one, you know. And I, um, I definitely don't want anyone to make this decision for you, and definitely not me. So you know, it's def- it's going to be for you to think about these different options and really think about, like I said, not only just what you're getting, but what you're giving up. Can you said you have to make the decision in a week, so you can't go and finish off the year at Berkeley and then decide to to leave. So I've already been accepted to UJ for a spring transfer. So as of right now, I'm registered at both schools. Mm. Uh, I basically just have to cut the cord on one of them mm-hmm, mm-hmm. before classes start, and I need to start looking for housing as soon as possible. Um, so, yeah, basically as soon as possible, I need to make the decision. Okay, yeah, and that, that's tough. Um, you know, I'd say take uh, some time with it. Even like just clear your mind, you know, as much as you can go for walks or whatever it is that works for you to clear your mind. Think about the the pros and cons. Take the decision very seriously, but also keep in mind that whatever you decide, what's really going to matter is what you do after the decision anyway. You know, so if you um, take your talents back home, um, that will mean that you'll have to, you know, do well there. Or if you stay at Berkeley, you'll have to make of yourself there as well. So take it seriously. But, you know, once you make the decision also, I would say go forward with it and just know there's going to be challenges, like I was saying before, either one, and just accept that as your path now and just make it happen. But after that, it's going to be up to you to make good of it. But um, the decision itself, it's going to be one part of many parts that you're going to have to do in the rest of your life. Okay. Thank you so much. Yeah. Good luck. Thank you, doctor. All right. Take care. Bye. Going to our last commercial break, uh, studio number 310-441-0555. We'll be right back. Welcome back. And so uh, the previous caller, um, wish him the best in making that decision between two schools. Uh, life will give us many of those kinds of decisions where we have to pick sometimes between two things, sometimes between more. And making decisions is a really tough thing to do and a big-time skill that we have to develop. Um, and I say develop because, like almost everything, it's not something you're just good at. Some people might be more decisive than others, but some of that has to come with the confidence they have in making decisions or the belief they have in themselves or also the belief they have that it's going to be okay either way so they can act more quickly because... Um, We always have to keep in mind that not making a decision is still making a decision or not acting is making a decision. And so very often when we get anxious about making a decision, what we do is we do nothing and think, well, at least I'm doing nothing. But each time you're doing nothing, that moment, that minute, that day, that month is making a decision to not do that thing or to not make one of the two choices. So if they offer you a new job, and you are thinking about it, but you're nervous about taking that new job, well, every day you don't take the job, you're deciding to not take it also. But people tend to go to the default of not changing. And so most people, when they're afraid of making decisions, afraid of making the wrong decisions, what they tend to do is avoid, what they think is avoid making a decision, and instead they do nothing. And they just let things happen sometimes to the point where then the decision makes itself because it's no longer available. So they say, hey, we can give you this new job in this new city. And they're nervous about it. They don't make a decision until it's no longer available. And in a way they feel like, well, I just didn't make a decision. But you did make a decision not to act, 
not to take it. And also even to not, you could have rejected it very clearly too, but people almost rather take the decision out of their own hands by not thinking about it or not making the decision because they're not sure um, about making the right decision or they don't trust themselves. So one aspect that I think is so important when it comes to this topic is for parents to give their kids um, opportunities to make decisions. Very often parents think, as I've talked about before, that they should employ what I call a pain prevention philosophy of parenting, meaning that if there is a situation and there can be some pain, discomfort, something that makes my child sad or unhappy, my job as a parent is to make sure they avoid that pain no matter what. And of course, when it's unnecessary pain or when it's something severe or when it's something um, that is just going to damage them, we should prevent that. But there's also pain that signifies growth or that creates growth. And when we actually stand in the way of that type of pain or discomfort, it's actually a lack of love. It's not doing a loving thing to do that. So if your child uh, has to do homework and you say, because I don't want my child to feel uncomfortable, I'm going to do their homework for them and turn it in. That's not loving, even though you feel like I've done something to prevent some pain or discomfort. We have to take away that mindset that if I'm removing pain, it has to be a good thing. Oh, she doesn't like doing this, so I'm going to do it for her. Oh, he doesn't want to do this, I'm going to do that. Um, oh, he doesn't want to um, go present in front of class, I'm going to find a, a psychologist to write a note to say he doesn't like making presentations and something, something, and I'm doing such a good job because I'm preventing some kind of discomfort. Actually, we have to create the right type of discomfort that creates growth in a way, push our kids. And of course, this applies to ourselves as well, but push our kids to that edge of where they're comfortable and uncomfortable, where growth is made. We only grow in those areas where there's a little bit of discomfort. You have to get pushed out of the comfort zone. If you keep, let's say, playing the same song on the piano the same way, you'll never get better. You have to try something new, new techniques that at the beginning will be difficult, will be uncomfortable, will make you frustrated and annoyed. But that's where the growing comes. So when it comes to decisions, parents have to do the same thing, both in allowing their kids to make the decisions, giving them that space, and also allowing them to deal with the consequences so they learn from that. If we take away either one, we interfere with their development uh, of decision-making because they have to first have the opportunity to make decisions. Some parents don't give them that. That you, if they find out, oh, tomorrow you can go to this place or this place. Oh, you should go to this one. You like it more. You like this one more. It's easier. Uh, let me just tell you what to do. That's taking away the decision. So let them think. They say, okay, this one I like to do this way. This one I like that. And they make a decision. So give them that opportunity to weigh the options, the pros and cons, how much the pros and cons matter in each case, and come to a decision. So first you have to give them opportunities to make decisions. But if we think that I have to avoid the pain or if we worry too much about them or if we also undermine them and want to make ourselves more important, we come in and we make all the decisions for them. And this is not an act of love. It's actually a lack of love. It's a lack of giving your children what they need. So we want to let them make the decisions. But then also we have to let them deal with the consequences of their decision. So, of course, it doesn't mean we just let them go and don't care what happens to them and don't care if they're suffering. But at times you have to let them feel some of the pain of the consequences that come with the decisions they make. Um, they didn't study and now they have to take a test 
And they say, oh, I, I don't think I'm ready, so just write me a note so I don't have to go to school. This puts the parent in a tough spot. They feel like, I don't want my kid to get upset. I also, sometimes parents can be so obsessed with grades that we get focused on the grades in the moment to moment and don't think about the big picture. So maybe the parent writes the note or just tells them stay home. Or you say, you know what? It was your decision last night. We, we knew you had the test and you wanted to play video games or you wanted to be on, do whatever it was you did. So, you know, you have to go face the consequence of this test and and see what happens and, and learn from it. And so it might seem harsh or it might seem like you don't care about your child who's going to be in some kind of discomfort, but you're allowing them to learn from what happened. If I don't study, this is the consequence. It's not a punishment. It's the consequence of life. Um, if you do something, there's a consequence. If you don't do something, there's a consequence of that as well. And so some parents might say, okay, let him make the decision the night before, but I'm going to take away the pain, the consequence of it. They're not going to learn that way. They have to actually experience it. And it's not a punishment as in you're adding something to it. It's just the reality of life. If you um, practice your times tables in math, you're going to get better at them. If you don't, you won't learn them. There's no way around it. It's not punishment that they're learn not learning it if they don't do it. It's just the consequence of life. So we have to allow them to face those consequences to see, you know what, it's okay or I can learn from them. And then now I can learn what to do with those consequences. So again, now more decisions can be made. You know what, I didn't study enough for that test and that's why it didn't go well. Next time when I want to go play video games or be on my phone, but it's time to study. I have to think of a way to do that. And you might help them depending on their age with those decisions or with aspects of it. For example, they might say, mom or dad, I need you to take my phone from me for one hour. Or I'm going to put it in this table when I go to the other room to study for one hour. And then in one hour, can you come give it to me? And then I can get a break or whatever it is. Um, and you might say, yeah, I'm going to help you in that way and support you. And give them that opportunity to learn from the consequences of the previous decisions that was well. And they start to rely on themselves more and more. That I can make decisions. I can learn from the decisions and the consequences. I can handle the consequences. That's another thing. When we take away all the pain, it has that coddling effect that makes them feel like they can't handle anything. Uh, and that itself is bad. But show them they can. Okay, you got a bad test score or... The teacher was disappointed in you or this happened or that happened, but you know, you survived, you're okay. And now let's learn from it and move forward and give them that reliance that they can make the decisions. And also something you're uh, unspokenly giving them when you do this, letting them make decisions is that you're telling them, I have the confidence in you to make the right decisions. And they slowly start to internalize that confidence. Unfortunately, what you see with a lot of not just young adults, but especially I'll see this in my practice. A lot of young adults who weren't given the opportunity to make decisions because their parents said, do this, don't do that. They try to control everything in their lives. Now when it's time to them, for them to make very important decisions in their lives, they don't trust themselves at all. They're faced with this enormous anxiety of what am I supposed to do? I don't know what I'm supposed to do. Someone else make this decision for me because my whole life I've been told I can't make the decisions myself. Someone has to make them for me. Someone has to tell me what to do. And that's really unfortunate when it comes time for young adults to make the important decisions in life, such as what to study, uh, who to marry, or if they want to be married, having kids, and all the other big decisions they now have to make in their life. 
So in another way, we can think of this as when your kids have these smaller decisions or the consequences are less significant, especially long-term when they're younger, let that be their trial and error time. Let that be the time where they try things out, fail, learn from it, keep going, but build that confidence that I can make the decisions. This is my uh, natural state is making decisions for myself. I don't need to rely on someone else, ask someone else or make uh you know, give it up to someone else to make the decision for me because I don't know and they know better. I'm going to make those decisions for myself. And also related to that, at the end of the day, we can't make the decisions for someone else because decisions have a lot to do with what feels right for us. We can't tell someone you should do this or should do that. Um, you should be with this person or that person. Sometimes we can see things they can't and that can be important for them. But a big part of what makes a good decision is how it's going to make us feel. And this is something last week when I had Dr. Jennifer Galvin, we talked about emotions, when we talked about emotional intelligence and how it often is downplayed as less important than being rag- rational or logical or uh, not as good or undermined, when really it's a big part of decision making. If something doesn't feel good to you when it's happening or in the long term, that's important. So if you're trying to pick a place to travel, I can't tell you what's the right place to go. If you don't like a, a beach destination, I say, Hawaii is the best place you have to go to Hawaii. You might not be very happy in Hawaii. I mean, you probably won't be too unhappy, but it might not be your best choice. Whereas you might prefer something else. And so someone can't make that decision for you because a big part of the information that goes into making the choice comes from within you. Only you know what feels right for you, what you enjoy, what you don't enjoy. And that's when we talk about intuition or that gut feeling. Some of it is because it's within you. I can't tell you what's going on inside of you. I can't tell you what you're feeling about this or that. You can do that. And so that's why even when people go to therapy, they sometimes think, I want the therapist to tell me what to do in my life. Now, interestingly enough, very likely those people had parents that made all the decisions for them. Now the person is looking for a new person to make the decisions for them. But what will be best for that person in therapy is for the therapist actually not to make the decisions for them to recognize the anxiety they have about making the decision, being empathic about that, showing them they care and understand about understand that, but recognize that what's best for them is to help them to make the decision themselves, to recognize that there is something within you that's going to help you understand. I might help you, um, you know, cut through the weeds a little bit and get to it if that's what you need and guide you towards you. I'm not guiding you towards the right answer because I know it, I can only guide you towards what's within you, and that's for you to figure out. You can't make a decision for someone else in a lot of cases because only they can know what's going to feel right or be right for them. So we have to keep this in mind that when people come to us at times and say, make this decision for me, of course, you might give them some of your advice or guidance or wisdom or experience or expertise, depending on what the situation is. And we like to give the advice in a way that we know for sure what's right for them, that we know the truth. And it can feel good to have that feeling of someone coming to us and telling us to make the decision for them. But we want to resist that and recognizing that even if you know what's right for them in this case, which usually is not true, in the long term, what's going to happen if you're the one that makes the decisions for them? If they don't get to make the decision themselves to see that they can make decisions. They can make right decisions. Everyone is going to get it wrong sometimes. No one's perfect. And so they can deal with that, live with that, and life moves on. But then they 
get to become the decision maker in their own life and no one else does it for them, which is ultimately what we should all want. All right, we're at the end of today's show. Wanted to announce again that on Wednesday's show, I'd be very happy to be joined by the author of the book, The Limits of Whiteness, Iranian Americans and the Everyday Politics of Race, Neda Makbula. That's Wednesday at 12 p.m. Hope you'll be listening then. Uh, thank you to the caller and a big thank you to Amir here in the studio. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Dalakwi. Have a wonderful night. 